When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to The Fader Interview. I'm Alex Robert Ross, Editorial Director of The Fader. When Rina Sawayama released her debut self-titled album in 2020, the world was adapting to lockdown and an uncertain future. What could have been a disaster for the London-based pop star in waiting, however, became something of a blessing in disguise. The album's high-octane blend of TRL-era pop and equally nostalgic new metal riffs created a soundtrack for DIY discos across the world as songs like XS and Comme des Garçons became staples for pop fans seeking a brief embrace of joy. The record also showcased Sawayama's songwriting prowess, with SDFU sticking two fingers up at the microaggressions the Japanese-born star had encountered while dating, and Chosen Family becoming a favorite among members of her queer community including Sir Elton John, who worked with her on a remix. Fast forward two and a half years. Sawayama is preparing to release her second album, Hold the Girl, boasting the confidence of a star who knows her musical risk-taking works as she returns to unlikely genres and artists for inspiration. One track, for example, imagines the Irish group The Cause writing for Gwen Stefani. Elsewhere, however, she's less assured. Much of Hold the Girl was written after extensive therapy, in which Sawayama learned to, quote, reparent herself after a difficult upbringing that involved her sharing a bedroom with her mother until the age of 15. There's a vulnerability in her new material that adds depth to her millennial pop and acknowledges the nuances in life that are never easy to navigate. The Fader's David Renshaw spoke to Sawayama last week about mixing humor with trauma in her lyrics how to avoid pandering to an audience in the social media age, and the low-key influence of musical theatre on her work. I guess I wanted to kind of go to the start of things. And I know that you approach songwriting like you might uh, an essay or a dissertation from your student days, obviously, at Cambridge. What were you reading around the time of making this album? In terms of what I read, like, so during lockdown, for example, like, I was really kind of mental health wise quite struggling even though my career was like going really well so I was reading a lot of self-help books to help me trying to gain a bit of perspective with what was going on and just like calmness so I actually read like this book called Power of Now which I know is like a really famous book and I was really skeptical of it at first but um it really helped and it really kind of got me back on track with mindfulness so that was amazing then I also read Crying in H Mart which is Michelle Zorner's book and I just really really connected to that uh I read other stuff like quite pretty intense stuff like um Consent by Vanessa Springora which is also an amazing book but I like to read kind of books by femmes um talking about identity stuff or just their history um yeah but a mix of that and like self-help I read somewhere that you had gone through Big Magic by Elizabeth Gilbert as well to help with some writer's block. What did you learn through that book and her writing that helped you overcome um, writer's block? 
I mean, my memory's so bad, so I'm just trying to remember exactly what it was, but I think it was to do with fear and it was to do with fear of failure and making mistakes. And yeah, I was just, I think I was just really scared of doing a bad album, the second album. And also I hadn't like traveled, hadn't toured. So I felt like that was my destiny, that it was going to be a bad album. And I just couldn't start really. I was stuck. I was so uninspired. And a songwriter friend, Lauren Aquilina actually, who's written on like eight of the album tracks, she was like, this is really good. And it, it really was. I listened to it as an audiobook while I was jogging, even though I hate jogging and I'll never do, never do that again. But yeah. So that, yeah, it was really good, actually. I mean, that's such a thing, isn't it? Writer's block, it can really clog up the process of, well, obviously, for obvious reasons, making an album. Yeah, I think it's once you put financial responsibility on your art, I think it does get worse because there's so many other factors that you are trying not to consider, but it does definitely becomes a factor in your decision-making around art. And yeah, I think it was, because the first album was quite unexpected in terms of how many people it connected with so I was I didn't I felt the pressure I didn't feel the pressure and I also felt the pressure it's curious that you mentioned with the album because because the, the first album Sawayama was so kind of uh unique in its release given that it came out pretty much as the pandemic started and had this kind of lifespan within the bulk of the kind of the, the height of the pandemic you, you seem to have some sort of doubts as to how to follow it up from what you just said did you not take confidence from the fact that this album kind of gave people a lot of strength through that period yes and no sometimes yes it totally did other times i was like i i knew i didn't want to do that album again you know i didn't want to write the same sort of songs I, i'd moved on from the topic at the point of release I, it had already been two years since i wrote some of the record uh, some of the songs on the record so I just knew that I didn't want to do the same thing. So then I guess try and innovate and try and make a new thing when people love one thing that you like a, something in the past that you've done is a little bit scary. But I think weirdly, yeah, not being able to tour and not being able to like meet real fans and hear like real yeah. feedback in real life helped in a way. I think I would have felt even more pressure if I'd met real fans and I didn't meet any real fans really for all two years. Yeah, that, I actually wanted to ask about that because the, the major difference between a first album and a second album for any artist is that you have an audience and you know what they want from you. How do you kind of strike that balance between keeping fans happy but not pandering to the first thing that they want? I think it's about knowing what kind of artist you want to be. I think there is definitely an approach anywhere in any industry where it's a lot to do with knowing the formula and sticking to the formula and trying to make as much money out of music. That's one route. Another route you could do is, oh, I don't care if this goes well, but at least I'm being true to myself. So I guess those are like the two opposites of like the very capitalistic approach and then the very self-enjoyment approach maybe. Yeah, for me, it was more important that I wanted to do. I wanted to write a record that I felt happy with because that's what the first record was all about. I think as soon as I tried to take in other people's opinions, I think I was scared that the whole thing would crumble, basically. When something's very big online, which obviously everything was on the internet, everything kind of art-wise art was online-based um, through the pandemic, it can feel quite ephemeral and unreal, can't it? It can feel like... I've seen this meme a hundred times, but someone across the street has never heard of it, that kind of thing. Did it Did it almost feel like that, that kind of very transient thing that the internet gives us? Oh, yeah, totally. I, I didn't know how big it really was. 
I couldn't really quantify what a retweet meant, if that makes sense, or like a like on a tweet. Like, what does that mean? Is that one fan? Is that two fans? Like, I, I just didn't know. And like things were happening so quickly that I couldn't even process a lot of things. I still haven't processed a lot of things like the Brits rule change, like Elton John, Lady Gaga remix, Metallica. I, I wasn't equipped to understand it. And I don't think a lot of people are. It's not a very normal thing. It's not a very human thing to happen for your existence to be known by so many people. So yeah, I think it, it was quite a shock when I came out of lockdown and was able to tour. But I would say that I felt so much happier doing things in real life and meeting real people I think it became way more tangible and therefore more pleasurable is this past kind of we're coming up to a year maybe nine months of live shows really kind of solidified where you you feel you sit and how, how, how much you've achieved yeah I love it I mean I just did a show in Tokyo um it was my first show in Japan and I played Summer Sonic which was a 2020 listing and so I've been waiting years to do that one and it was insane it was like it, it was maybe like 10,000 15,000 people and I'd never played in Japan before I'd never properly promoted my record in Japan because I couldn't and so it was yeah that was really crazy and things like that just made me you know as definitely live the live music part of it is what I crave and what motivates me to keep writing music. I think I really am quite amazed that I would manage to motivate myself to write a record, even though I hadn't told the first one. But now that I'm able to do live shows, I can kind of test my music and know what I really want to perform. Have you found that any tracks from the first album when you've been playing live have taken on a life of their own and maybe they're bigger than you had anticipated they they were oh i think songs like lucid <laughs> was quite surprising how many people like love that one in the set i'd say maybe paradising is like one of the ones that people already like go crazy for and also dynasty as well like yeah album tracks that weren't singles i think i mean not lucid but like album tracks that weren't singles um really yeah surprised me in terms of how people connected with it and yeah, I mean, I think the thing with the tours that I've had, you know, they've been two years in the making, you know, so so I think it's like the people who are there have been holding on to their tickets for two years and they're just so excited. So just the energy is wild and incredible. into the album a bit and dig into some of the themes of the record it opens with uh, minor feelings titled after the book by uh, the poet kathy park hong and about the kind of marginalization of asian american experience the previous album kicked off with dynasty that kind of set the tone and has this kind of agenda setting moment and this is the same i wondered if you could tell me a bit about what it is you wanted to say with that song and how it then positions the rest of the album yeah i mean Minor Feelings is like such a great title, first of all. I was just so inspired by the title in itself. 
because a lot of racial microaggressions are minor feelings, things that you don't feel like you should speak up about because it's not it's not a hate crime. You know, it's not something that you would think about telling the police or something like that. But the reality is like, especially with Asian people like that, I actually did turn into a lot of hate crime during COVID. It was kind of horrific what was happening to like el- like elderly Asian people in around the US and just people in the UK as well. Just the rhetoric around Asians and COVID was like really terrible. I really felt like so much of what I've gone through it can't be separated from the like the socio-political background that I exist in, which is that I'm an Asian queer woman and you can't isolate my experience from that fact. So it felt important to put that in. And like kind of it, the, there's a line in there that's like hide behind a plastic shield. And I read this article about this Asian nurse who um, was treating someone who had COVID, but that patient refused to be treated by her because she's Asian and so that really that inspired that lyric and so yeah it was those two things I guess it was like this backdrop of being Asian but also just like the simple description of minor feelings and just feeling like this is not a major incident but the things that I was kind of carrying from my past really felt like it boiled over and yeah, so minor feelings are majorly getting me down. One of the first singles that we heard from the album is This Hell, which is a very good example of the ways in which you put comedy into your music. And there's, there's like a, a line of um, in that song where you sing, God hates us, all right then. How important is um, mixing humour in alongside the more traumatic lyrical themes to your music? I think it's so important. I think humour is like, you know, maybe the last thing that you need so you can exist with your trauma um, throughout your life. I think it's really important to make light of horrible things that have happened to you and have a safe space to do that. Um, And the song is like, you know, at its core, very queer. You know, but it was written in a time where this hell is better with you. Like that statement really did apply to like a lot of people around the world because it was during like COVID and it felt like hell. And the people who were around you, you really like depended on them for emotional support. Like I have an amazing group of, you know, queer friends and friends that I consider like my safe space. And so we do, you know, we make jokes about our trauma and like, like terrible things that happen, things that are awful, but we can make light of like all the time. And I think that's really, really helpful to move on and move forward. Yeah, totally. I think comedians are kind of complaining about, you can't joke about this, you can't joke about that. It's kind of not, it's not, I mean, it's not true on lots of levels, but one of the most obvious and striking ways in which it's proven wrong all the time is that people who are in those communities and have that experience, not from the outside, which is where the issue I think comes, is humour is such a vital part of the experience. And it, it, there's clearly lots of room for 
jokes about quite serious topics and issues. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if you're referring to like the Hannah Gatsby Netflix special. I was really struck by that. You know, the concept that like you don't have to turn your trauma into your brand, if that makes sense, which I feel like I'm kind of slightly falling into the trap of like inadvertently. I'm just speaking my truth and writing about my life. But I definitely resonate with some of the things that Hannah has said. It's very hard and it's, you know, it's not necessarily like the only thing that you can do to make yourself better about things. And like, for me, like those songs come from conversations that I've had in safe spaces that I'm now able to, you know, kind of give back to my friends by writing a song like that, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, how does that work for you where you kind of write through these experiences and gain perspective on them through through the arts but then I guess you're left in a position where you then have to talk to lots of strangers about this thing and go out and perform it every night and relive those memories does it make it hard to distance yourself from some of these things or does that not affect you so much I would definitely say with this record I felt way more like re-triggered by things by I think also, I've done a lot more face-to-face interviews and I've done a lot more promotion around this record. And at first I was like, oh, I'm totally over. I can speak it. But actually it's kind of gradually become obvious that like, I think I am getting a little bit slightly worn down, slightly made like a bit numb um, by this kind of, you know, quite traumatic experience. And I don't want to ever feel numb about it, I think. And so that's kind of the line I'm always towing. So that that's kind of where I'm at with this record. I think at the beginning I was like, woo, I can like talk about my record forever and ever. But now it, it, I think, you know, kind of the album's coming out in two weeks time. And yeah, I've kind of noticed now that it's like insane to talk about your trauma to like a hundred people. <laughs> and I've never like kind of spoken about it explicitly. And that's kind of still between me and my therapist but you know it's it's an insane concept actually to talk about traumatic things over and over and over again so um it's it's like you know it's strange because I know I can heal people by taking what I've felt and putting it into a song but at the same time yeah it's like trying to balance the mental well-being of myself next song that I wanted to talk about is um catch me in the air which is about your relationship with your mother Like I said, we're not going to delve into that too much, but I was curious if you'd played the song or even the new album for your mum and kind of how that played out for you. Because obviously that's a very, it's a very direct way of communicating with somebody that perhaps communication or, or the relationship hasn't always been the strongest. Yeah. Um, you know, I wrote that song in kind of celebration of how far we've come. Also mixing in a little bit of reality from my side and how it felt, um, because the reality is we did share a, a bedroom until I was 15 like we just we were struggling financially but it's like with anything with songwriting I think it's really important to understand that even though I might have moved on from that and I have like good memories now because 
I feel like we've come so far. It's not necessarily that for everyone, if that makes sense. And like, you know, my mum's perspective might not be my perspective on things, even if it was a long time ago. I think she's very, very proud of the album. I think she's very proud of the music I write. But because memories involve a lot of people's different versions of the truth, I guess, I have to be quite cognizant of that. But yeah, I think overall she's really proud of the record I think she's really into the record um I actually haven't sent her the album link yet but she's like heard bits and bobs so um I did play it to her like in person but I get really awkward when she asks me about details about lyrics I get awkward about like when anyone is like so what does this lyric mean or like what is exactly you know um, uh, especially I don't know if it's especially if it's parents I'm just I turn into like a teenager I'm just like go away but yeah she I think she's proud you've spoken in some recent interviews about the importance of country music to this album what i took from that and correct me if i'm wrong is that there's the storytelling and the narrative kind of strength of country music where it's very direct you get you're getting kind of a very clear viewpoint which obviously comes through in in your your songwriting as well could you talk to me a bit about the ways in which you feel country music has influenced this this album well my kind of gateway drug to country music was Casey Musgraves golden hour I'd never heard such like refined songwriting really and obviously she's country pop and then so I started listening to other country pop artists like Dolly and like trio which is like band that, that Dolly was in with two other singers and also then obviously Shania Twain is like the queen of country pop the honest storytelling that the very very visual storytelling I think also for me like at the time I just craved this sense of expanse I was like everyone just trapped in a flat um, and couldn't go anywhere. didn't have, you know, I, I wanted to write this album in Nashville and LA and, and kind of really explore the proper methods of country writing, but I couldn't. So I really, I think, yeah, listening to country pop music really like gave me access to this big world that I was able to actually access. There's a song on the album towards the end of the album called Send My Love to John that in in my mind feels kind of twinned with Chosen Family from the first album, if not in sound or necessarily directly lyrical, just that they, I don't know, maybe I'm just being uh, just quite vague about it, but yeah, they feel paired in some sense. Certainly Chosen Family has always felt to me like it could be in a, a musical. I don't know, is musical theatre any kind of influence on you or it has any importance in your life? Because it feels like feels like some of your songs would actually make for great moments in musicals. Oh, thank you. I mean, I really think that like, you know, Hold the Girl is very musical and musical theatre. I really, I love musical theatre. Like I was obsessed with Chicago when I was growing up. Definitely it is like a counterpoint to Chosen Family, Send My Love to John, because it's about like basically like parents, it's, it's for anyone who needs to hear sorry from their parents and they'll never get it basically. And specifically, I'm talking about like a friend who um, was never really accepted by their parents for their queerness. And um, there was just one amazing kind of thing that the mum said, which was like, okay, so like at the end of a phone call, just says, send my love to John. They'll never hear the word sorry, you know, sorry for ostracizing you, sorry for, you know, making you feel this way, sorry for being homophobic, sorry for, you know, like they'll never hear that. But that to me was the sorry. It was a little, little tiny slither. And sometimes that's all we get. And sometimes that's, we can't hang on to that. But sometimes 
we have to be okay with that, you know? And so it comes, it comes from a very empathetic viewpoint of a parent, because I really think, and also having had a lot of people around me become parents during lockdown is that they really go into this, like filled with love. They want the best for their child, but things happen. People are busy, financial stresses, you know, all these things. And like, they're just tired and they can't make the right decisions and that supports the child and they're scared for them when they are a bit different. Yeah, it's a really, really special song for me because the whole record has themes of reparenting and parenting yourself and parenting other people. But that one was really inspired by an amazing event. And I hope that that song makes people who need to hear that story from their parents or loved ones feel a little bit more cared for. And do you feel that you, you're writing more and more on this album from outside of your own perspective? Like you say, that's um, a song written from the perspective of someone else's parents. You're clearly considering the way that your mother has felt in the past and, and just kind of like getting outside of your own head. Is that been an important part of writing this new album? Yeah, I've tried to, although really, I mean, the whole record is so much through my perspective. <laughs> I think I would love to go from a more generic perspective next time because the kind of psychological giving that happens when you write a record that's so personal is, is quite a lot. So I think, yeah, from next time, I'd probably like to just, I just, I joked that I was like, yeah, next time I'm just writing Bossa Nova, like just chill really relaxing music because I can't I can't like it's a lot I think I was really inspired by like how Taylor Swift was able to write outside of her perspective with folklore and it was something that I hadn't really thought about as much um until lockdown when I was like oh god like how am I going to get inspiration like I can't be inspired nothing's happening to me but actually if you look around there's so many stories that are waiting to be told speaking of songwriters Someone who's come into your world since the first album is Elton John. You've collaborated on a remix of Chosen Family. He's obviously a great listener of new music, appreciator of new music, and appears to basically reach out and make build relationships with artists that he admires. I was I was wondering what kind of advice or just conversations you've been able to have with him outside of working together, but just as on a on a more personal level, like what kind of things is he able to tell you and what have you learned from getting to know him? Oh my God, so many things. I mean, first of all, yeah, it is incredible that someone like him is even interested in an artist like me or smaller artists. Cause I just think even, you know, you look at the British summertime lineup that he curated, it's just full of new artists that he's really passionate about that, you know, might not get exposed to the same kind of audience that he has. And it was just amazing. The best advice that from watching him, I've kind of gathered is, I think it's really important to just stay so true to your politics. He's done so much for HIV AIDS um, with his foundation. Started in a time where it was like, it was considered so dirty to even talk about it, you know, it was so stigmatized. And I think he is so fueled by real people and real experiences, even though his life is like so far from what normal people you know live but he's tried to stay connected as much as possible like that that is really admirable for me because even just you know him talking to me asking what I'm feeling about things and asking about other people's opinions it's it's just you know I really think that's like the secret to his success is just he 
is interested in what the wider world is, is doing. You know, he's very curious. I guess, yeah, I mean, definitely his support has made me feel a lot more confident in my songwriting because he's one of the best songwriters in the world. I want to make sure that as I get older, I re- I'm looking at younger artists as well. I was thinking about pop music in 2022. There's a lane of artists such as yourself, Charlie XCX, I think, self-esteem. To me, you feel as much students of pop as direct products of the genre. Is that something you recognize? And do you feel like a kind of capital P pop star? Um, No. (laughs) I feel like a fraud always. I'm very lucky I have an incredible team of makeup artists and hair artists and who do my face and stylists and, you know, photographers and all that to make me look that. But really, I'm quite bewildered by everything. I mean, again, like I entered this industry a little bit later, so there's so many things that I'm just like, my brain can't understand, you know, but I will say that, yeah, I, I feel so lucky to like exist in a time where, you know, there are people like me and Charlie and like self-esteem or like even like Lil Sims, for example, like we're able to like tell these incredible stories and like just combine so many musical elements and it's not weird anymore. And that's really nice. And also all of us, we have so much agency over our music and the way we are perceived and our image and our you know marketing and everything and so I think that is like so incredible I feel so fortunate and yeah I'm constantly inspired by those people and you know I hope people know that in the background we all just really support each other we're all in very very different lanes I have a lot of love for Charlie especially if someone said tomorrow you will become you know that kind of Ariana Grande type figure is that something that appeals to you Oh, I'm definitely not ready for it. <laughs> I'm still catching up on things that happened two years ago, I would say. My my little brain can't handle it. But for me, like the motivation to do this is just, I want to write big songs. And that's kind of was the focus of this record. I wanted to house what was great about Sawayama to me, which was that I was able to like infuse it with such personal stories, but put it in a more, much more refined songwriting structure, like a pop pop structure, pop melodies, um, in a way that so many people might sing along to it and not know what it means. Like so many people might sing to my music like at festivals, but then like the people, you know, there'll be such a flip, like flip side meaning that people don't know. And like, I love, that side of things a lot I also like I'm obsessed with like the live performance side and making that better and better so if I'm able to do those two things then that's great and like I realized that obviously a big part of my job is to like look hot um but genuinely that does not motivate me whatsoever I feel very lucky that I get to work with my amazing you know visual team and also like my glam team like I literally don't know what I'd do without them but my big motivation is the skill of songwriting, just becoming a better and better artist and connecting with as many people as possible and kind of seeing where that takes me really. I've realized recently that I have a hard time imagining anything um, visually. I don't know, that's just like a part of my brain that's like missing. Sometimes like when I'm writing a song, there will be a visual that pops into my head, but in terms of like, hey, like this is what your calendar is gonna look like in a month, I just like can't visualize it. So in the same way, I can't find it quite hard to visualize what, an album might do and I try not to have expectations I just try and focus on my input goals which is write a good album give every interview everything you know just bring a really good intention to everything I do that was Rina Sawayama talking to the faders David Renshaw 
Brina Sawayama's new album, Hold the Girl, is out September 16 via AWOL. The Fader interview is engineered by Tony Giambroni. The executive producer is Alex Robert Ross, and the associate producer is Raphael Helfland. We'd like to thank Lauten Audio for providing our microphones. You can find them online at lautenaudio.com. And we'd like to thank James Ivey for providing our intro music. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd appreciate if you left a five-star rating and review. If you like listening to The Fader, good news. We're now on the new live radio app, Amp. Download it from the App Store now. And keep an eye on thefader.com for essential music news, interviews, and essays. We'll be back next week with another episode of The Fader Interview. Goodbye until then.